0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Propaganda Watch. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It's an observation that I've made many times here on Propaganda Watch and in my other work besides that humans are, in fact, by far the most studied species on this planet by the technocrats. And I say that advisedly, not only because of the copious amounts of testing that go on directly on humans, medical, psychological, and otherwise, but also because a lot of animal research is, of course, actually research that is being conducted for its use in extrapolating to the human population. Uh, For example, obviously medical, uh, testing of medical technologies, devices, uh, remedies, and uh, and medicines, etc. are done on animals as a uh, preparatory stage to human testing. But even behavioral studies, even psychological studies, are often performed on animals. And again, the results of those studies are extrapolated for their relevance to the human population. Uh, And in fact, there is an entire field of study that people may not be able to name, but ethology, which is the study of animal behavior, which again is often used to make comments on humans. And one particular experiment I note has gained Uh, a great degree of infamy or popularity or whatever it is on online, specifically in the last few years. And I'm not exactly sure why in the last few years, but I'm sure all of you have, by this point, heard of the mouse utopia experiments conducted by John B. Calhoun, working for the National Institute of Mental Health. But if you have not, Never fear, you can turn to the National Library of Medicine, which had a series, well, has collected a series of short film reels that were uh, made about those experiments in the early 1970s and that is now available on their YouTube channel that will explain those experiments and their context to you.
1: Two and a half years ago, we found Dr. John Calhoun knee-deep in mice in the mouse heaven he designed for the National Institute of Mental Health Animal Center near Washington. Dr. Calhoun wanted to find out what would happen to a mouse colony given everything mice need except living space. The result was chilling. Two and a half years ago, more than 2,000 mice were packed into Mouse City. Today, a tiny handful of survivors huddles in one corner of the city. Dr. Calhoun explains what the overcrowding did to Mouse City's inhabitants.
2: The last thousand animals born uh, never learned to develop the social behaviors. They never learned to be aggressive, which is necessary in defense of home sites. Uh, They never learned to court. There was no mating. Being no mating, there were no progeny. And the older animals uh, whose behavior was already becoming disrupted, they eventually reached an age too old to reproduce, and so it was all left up to these uh, last thousand or so whom we call the beautiful ones because uh, not engaging in any stressful activity uh, and only paying attention to themselves, they groomed themselves well so they look uh, very fine specimens. But from that point on, which was about the time that you were here
1: two and a half years ago.
2: reproduction totally ceased, and the animals have just aged and died.
1: At least one human group, the Eat tribe, discovered in Africa by Dr. Colin Turnbull, has gone through a similar terrible process, according to Dr. Calhoun.
2: The two conditions that they went through was that there was a decision on the then-colonial government to make a wildlife preserve of this big, Valley, which was their home with their hunter gatherers, who moved up onto the mountainside and gathered together in much higher densities. that had been spread out in small groups, they were all placed in one place, and also required to engage in an entirely different way of life, in which their social roles, the whole, everything they'd learned how to do, had no meaning. Under those conditions, the Social behavior broke down entirely, they began living, they still lived together but their activities were just directed towards themselves. Uh, everything we think is human disappeared.
1: Perhaps the most chilling conclusion from his Mouse City studies, says Dr. Calhoun, is that once this change in social behavior occurs, it apparently cannot be reversed.
2: It's this. Fact a fact of apparent irreversible phase shifts that give some of us a particular concern over the fate of the human situation because we see uh, worldwide the breaking down of social roles, the increase in contact both as a result of the breakdown of social roles and because there are too many people, that this might lead to an overriding of our controls of our total culture and would be set into a process which would either fix us rigidly forever into some sort of global tribalism without any adaptation to change uh, or there would result uh, perhaps eventually some decline very much like we've seen here but that postponed somewhat.
1: Dr. John B. Calhoun with a very sobering look at a possible future for us. Bill Roberts from the National Institute of Mental Health Animal Center near Washington.
0: Now, if you follow the link to that video in the show notes, you can continue watching and the, the half hour of film reels that the National Library of Medicine have made available on this subject, or you can watch some of the other compilations or commentaries that have come up online, or some of the many, many articles that have appeared in the last few years talking about these experiments and what their results mean for the human population, of course. And uh, as I say, please explore the show notes for links to those resources, more on which later. But first, I think this is a prime candidate for an exploration of propaganda, not only because of the, I think, first order and perhaps more obvious propagandistic elements to this research and And its propagation, especially in recent years. um, But also for second and third order propaganda analysis that lets us go uh, a far ways deeper than I think a lot of the researchers online have gone so far with it. And it gets to some pretty incredible areas when you really uh, reach the base level of this. But I bring this all... Up today um, because I think it is highly relevant to a number of things that are taking place today, but also because I was recently on Grand Theft World, which is a new podcast series being hosted by Richard Grove of Tragedy and Hope, who uh, is using a team to compile a live podcast um, that is being aired every Sunday night. And I will include the link to the Grand Theft World homepage so you can see the previous work it's done. It's also a chronological compilation of uh video productions and productions by various researchers that is being compiled at Grand Theft World. Sometimes people say, well isn't there one website I can go to for everything? Well, Grand Theft World is attempting to be that and I think has over 40 researchers. They create a chronological feed of the latest works no matter what platform these people are on or d platform formed for, uh, from. Their their works are being made available through Grand Theft World. So I was recently on Grand Theft World specifically to talk to Richard Grove about Books, physical books, and I would highly suggest you watch that conversation if you haven't yet done so. I think it was an interesting one, and I will have more to say on that later this week. But uh, in that, as I was preparing to uh, go on to talk to Richard, they did air these Mouse Utopia experiments, uh, at least some of the film footage of that, and they did dissect some of that propaganda live there on the podcast. And I wanted to to start with that today to show in real time, how this propaganda can be deconstructed, how some of the dots can be connected and how we can learn more than simply taking information in at face value and leaving it there. No, we can explore more to find out some of the deeper connections. And I think this is a good example of exactly how to do that.
3: All right, control room. Uh, I'm looking for a fact check. Can you guys tell me who funded the John B. Calhoun study? And can we bring up that national, or the Smithsonian Mag article? On it real quick because from my perspective these people are taking a lot of care planning our future they're doing these experiments on the mice and the rats and we know they don't care about the rats and the mice right they're willing to do horrendous things to those those animals in order to find this information to use it for the empowerment and the betterment of humanity and to have a see a safe peaceful world with healthy people so i believe that they're the national institutes of health that they're conducting all that research and funding it uh, because they're looking to to help people, not to control people. However, uh, is that information at the end of the day, is it used for us? Is it used against us? That's the question we have to ask. Is that type of research brought into an idea like lockdowns, which didn't have a public vernacular until after those experiments, were those experiments tied into something like Milgram's, uh, You know, obedience studies or the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment, these sort of things. Uh, Was that knowledge used against enemies as a type of psychological warfare? What other uses does that data that they're gathering and organizing in such a such a like non confrontational way? Look, there's nothing to see here, folks. They're just, you know, they got some studies with some mice. They're not really going to use that information against people they're going to use it for the betterment of society so they're studying violence and as the crowding and aggression that ties in with the frustration aggression complex that the yale institute of human relations came up with in like 1938 so they're learning a lot between the 1920s and the 1980s about how people work behavioral triggers psychological warfare propaganda Uh, You know, all these sorts of elements that are brought to bear against people who just think they're getting the news. They think they're reading the newspaper to get informed. They think they're watching Walter Cronkite to find out what's really going on out there. Uh, There's also like a foreshadowing of the track trace database system. You know, they're gathering all this information on how those mice and those rats are mating. You don't think they're gathering that type of information on people while they're in quarantine and lockdown. And, you know, what happens to people and their behavior when you start taking away their freedom bit by bit? And what happens when those reasons for taking away their freedom diverge greatly from the evidence about reality? What happens there? And historically, is there any evidence that there's been something deleterious that might go on from these types of circumstances as they unfold over and over and over again? And there's excuses. There's excuses in the past. We didn't have the information in front of us, but we're in the 21st century. We could point to a lot of history that has repeated that we could readily learn about. The people in the gulags, the people that were suffered under the communist revolution, they didn't really have access to the world history kind of as we do right now. So whether or not it's reinforced by legacy media, it does exist. It does have gravamen and weight on what's going on today. It does provide a lot of answers to questions that people have and can't answer otherwise through the channels that they're looking at. And I think that only by looking at the contextual history of something like that and juxtaposing it to what's going on today, only through comparison and contrast can we come to make informed decisions in our lives. Control room, what do you guys got? Yeah, it looks like
2: Lawrence has got that Smithsonian article up there. And then, you know, I think there's a good fee article as well out there with some decent resources to it. Um, and then the oh, Foundation
3: classic. for Economic Education?
2: Correct. Is that fee?
3: Yeah. Right. Yep. That that fee. Yep. And there's a that Wikipedia
2: fee. article on it too. So we can dig through a few of those things. But Lawrence, why don't you bring up? All right, up let's that go to LD. What do you
3: got? Yeah, a Smithsonian Magazine article from February 26, 2015. How 1960s mouse utopias led to grim predictions for a future of humanity. John Calhoun studied behavior during overcrowding in mice and rats. And you were asking about the funding, um, I believe, yeah, National Institutes of Mental Health. NIM, The Secret of NIM yes with the mouse experiments okay that's legit they took it from the book you can look it up
2: <laughs>
3: Secret of name. all right how about uh tyler will you look up or if you can will you look up the wiki page because i'm interested because oh. i know there's a rockefeller Ready. foundation funding but smithsonian might not want to bring that to your attention what do we got is that readily graspable because it's around the same time rockefeller foundation they're funding some other fun experiments uh called mk ultra with the cia and its various sub-projects so when you get back to like hey jd rockefeller had an empire they went after him as a monopolist he spread off had i'm a philanthropist now kind of like bill gates right there's a repeating pattern so jd rockefeller you know has this rockefeller foundation it helps and is instrumental in creating the council on foreign relations and then it's it's super instrumental in creating the CIA and its sub projects that are going on with MK ultra for an example. And then all these other areas where there's overlapping and then the recent, uh, what is it? The technology and development document. I don't, it's under the stack of stuff here, but the technology and development document from 2010, in which there was a chapter called a scenario called lockstep in which lockdowns and masks and social distancing and all the things that heretofore were not in previous pandemic planning plan, uh, Pentagon plans. Like those are new ideas brought by the Rockefeller Foundation because they care about our future and they care about our health. And they are always out there looking out for us in our best interest, just like they're looking after those mice.
0: Once again, that was the Grand Theft World podcast, specifically episode 005 of that podcast that I will commend to your attention not only because I was a guest on that program talking to Richard Grove about books, the importance of physical books. Uh, I, I think that's a conversation worth listening to, but more broadly because I think Grand Theft World is an interesting model for people about how to start approaching propaganda generally, but any issue really, in terms of pulling up different articles, putting in the context, comparing and contrasting ideas from from here and seeing if they're similar to ideas over there, bringing in history, collaborating with others to make that happen. That's a model in real time of how that type of research can happen. So my hat's off to the Grand Theft World uh, podcast for modeling that on a weekly basis. And I hope more people will check it out. Um, but uh, since this is the corporate Report and since we're engaged in Propaganda Watch, Let's go one layer deeper, because it strikes me that there is uh, there is obviously a lot to learn there uh, about these experiments and the way they propagate through the uh, the, uh, the the population, not only the the articles and different resources that they brought up live on air there, but also one that was referenced, although I don't believe they actually looked at it in particular the fee.org article John P Calhoun's Mouse Utopia Experiment and Reflections on the Welfare State and there are there are many different ways that you can approach this experiment and look at what its deeper implications are but I think when we do so, we also have to be conscious of a particular piece of propaganda that's embedded in the very concept of ethology and in this experiment in particular and all of the ways that all of these people are examining it, which is namely that we take at face value what is clearly embedded within this this experiment, which is that this experiment is not about mice or how best to regulate mouse populations. I mean, of course, this isn't ultimately about mice. This is about humans.
3: Though
2: these studies use animals, the findings about population growth and individual behavior are being closely compared to our own human population.
1: Doctor, what do you think now of the stress on environmental problems trying to solve them? Should government, uh, the politicians, being pay more attention to this problem, do you think? They're all interlaced. It isn't that simple. But... Uh...
2: Well, the problem—the environment—is is just one one problem which we're focused on now, and this may be uh, a real trap because we only look at the physical, biological aspects of our surroundings. Where if we focused instead on what is a much more essential, comprehensive problem, and this is uh, evolution and the designing of evolution, and in fact, we like to say that uh, we are revolutionists here, but a the kind of revolutionist could you now spell differently. Now, we all know what this symbol is, it says prescription, yes. but... Uh, so we're concerned with the prescription for evolution, of the design of the future, the design of evolution, so we're revolutionists.
0: Yes, you don't have to go very far to find out the truth that these experiments, of course, are not about the animals. They are about the human population and how the lessons of these experiments can be applied to the human population, uh, either to provide for the flourishing of the human population or to provide for its disintegration, because it is a fact that must be pointed out again that just like biological weapons research can be used to offensively create weapons that you can fight other people with, or defensively, because we need to know how to defend against these biological weapons that they, those other guys are probably making. It amounts to the same thing. Well, similarly, looking at mouse utopias or dystopias, when we think about how that can or should be applied to the human population, can either be used as a warning, well, we should try to do this in order to make the human population flourish, or it could be used, of course, offensively against the human population. If you want to make a human society disintegrate, We'll just do this, guys. And again, we don't have to go very far to see that this, of course, is not about mice. It is about people. We can go to John B. Calhoun himself, who wrote uh, an article in the uh, Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine in January of 1973 about his research called Death Squared, The Explosive Growth and Demise of a Mouse Population, where he wrote, "'I shall largely speak of mice, but my thoughts are on man, on healing, on life and its evolution.' Threatening life and evolution are the two deaths, death of the spirit and death of the body. Evolution, in terms of ancient wisdom, is the acquisition of access to the tree of life. This takes us back to the white first horse of the apocalypse, which with its rider set out to conquer the forces that threaten the spirit with death. Further, in Revelation 2.7, we note, To him who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And further on, uh, Revelations chapter 22, verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. This takes us to the fourth horse of the apocalypse, Revelations chapter 6, verse 7. I saw a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Italics mine. Italics mine. This second death has gradually become the predominant concern of modern medicine, and yet there is nothing in the earlier history of medicine or in the precepts embodied in the Hippocratic Oath that precludes medicine from being equally concerned with healing the spirit and healing nations as with healing the body. Perhaps we might do well to reflect upon another of John's transcriptions. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. (laughs) <laughs> that, let me remind you, that is John B. Calhoun, the researcher behind the mouse utopia dystopia experiment, writing in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine <laughs> about his mouse experiment. So <laughs> make of that what you will. But yes, this is not about mice, guys. I, I don't think we need to uh, to speculate about that point. But then what is the point what is actually being said here and what what should we take away from it? Well, again, this is where we can look at, oh, well, are we being engineered into some sort of mouse dy- dystopia in order to better control the human population and make it go in a certain way? And there's a very specific way in which we can look at that by actually a- literalizing the metaphor of the mouse utopia well this mouse utopia is like the human population and we can we can see what happens there and we can compare it to how humans act but actually let's let's take the whole experimental setup and say that that's the metaphor upon which we're working in which there is an experimenter who is looking down and creating crafting this experimental space that has these conditions and these certain uh, ways of being constructed that will lead to this type of flourishing of the population or this type of disintegration of the population. And they are looking at the ways that this happens and then can use that to create another experiment where presumably you could do the same thing with a different batch of mice and get the same results. So we can now use this as a method. Well, okay, let's not just look at the mice in this. Let's look at the experimenter and the, the setup of the experiment. And you see, well, if we could engineer the human species into a situation where they similarly have their material want and needs taken care of, and uh, the only limitation is on their space. Well, will they start to disintegrate this way? Well, can we literalize that metaphor? Does is that happening? in actuality, and yes, I would say it is. In fact, this is how we need to be reading all of this wooly, fluffy, wonderful rhetoric about sustainable development. Sustainable development sounds so wonderful. We only care about the environment. We just want to go in and make sure all these spaces, this this lush abundance of the natural world is taken care of for future generations. Don't you want that? Yes, I do want that. Okay, then all we have to do is set up these multilateral organizations, these international bodies like the World Wildlife Federation will come in and lovingly appropriate these areas from the people who are living on them and use those resources wisely for the benefit of the literal card-carrying eugenicists who found these organizations. You can't make it up. Please go to Why Big Oil Conquered the World if you do not know this story, and then follow that up with my podcast, What is Sustainable Development?, where I talk about this, the debt-for-nature swaps that are increasingly being used and going to be used going forward from here through organizations like the GEF which we just covered on New World Next Week last week, in order to uh, monopolize vast swaths of the earth and the natural abundance of the earth, crowd people into highly controlled, packed urban areas where, like that mouse experiment, it's an artificially created tiny space that gives the impression, the general impression of overcrowding. Uh, and so people start to internalize, oh, the wor- world is overpopulated and we all have to retreat into our little bubble that we can find in here and preen ourselves and basically uh, wait for our death or breed, our- or unbreed ourselves into extinction. So yes, there are some very interesting ways that this, this experiment can be looked at, but this is Propaganda Watch. This is the Corbett Report. Let's go one layer deeper. (laughs) I feel like I'm in Inception or something, but this is what we have to do because there is another layer of research that goes on either underneath or over top. This, This ostensible research, Calhoun and his experiment, okay, but let's research about that research and more specifically how that research gets internalized and propagated throughout society. What an intriguing thing. It's research about research. And on that note, if that sounds interesting to you, I will highly commend that you go to some of this research. For example, Escaping the Laboratory, The Rodent Experiments of John B. Calhoun and Their Cultural Influence by Edmund Ramsden and John Adams, which is one of the working papers on the nature of evidence, How Well Do Facts Travel? And I will put in the link to the full document that you can read through, which gets into some interesting details, which will be summarized by another group that I think is very interesting and that you would expect to be the ones that are researching about the research and how that research affects the human population that hears about that research, specifically the London School of Economics and Political Science. If you don't know what the LSE is or why it is such an interesting institution from that perspective, I, I will invite you to once again go back and look at that Grand Theft World model that was just provided of how to look things up and how to connect dates and look for funding and look for connections. You will find some interesting ones with the LSE. But when this Research came out about the cultural influence of the Calhoun experiments. The LSE was there to talk about it uh, in an article they published, Letting the Rat Out of the Bag, which starts, again, intriguingly. I look at Gotham, my friends, and what do I see? Gangs roam the streets attacking at will. Stress-related illness, crime, murder. Their society is collapsing around them, just like Universe 133. These words, spoken by the supervillain the Ratcatcher to an audience of rats in a 1995 Batman comic, embody a popular suspicion of the metropolis of the city gone bad. They also reflect the influence of the research of John B. Calhoun... An animal ecologist who studied the effects of crowding on social animals, such as rats and mice, at the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. Calhoun's early research was published in 1962 and went on to become some of the most widely referenced in psychology. It has also had a wider impact on architecture, literature, and popular culture. The Universe 133 mentioned in the Batman comic is a direct reference to one of Calhoun's specifically constructed rodent universes, enclosures where the animals were provided with food, bedding and shelter and allowed to breed. It was a veritable rat or mouse paradise. But just like the Garden of Eden, it was not to last. The one thing that the rats lacked was space. And as the population grew, there were soon too many rats uh, for each to have its own territory. And this led to an increasing number of fights. It goes on to describe what you've already seen today and what you can find by uh, perusing some more about those experiments, Um, the uh, neglecting the the infants, uh, retreating into personal spaces, uh, even cannibalism, that sort of thing. Um, But then they start talking about how that experiment propagated through culture and society. Uh, They start uh, quoting the researchers from this paper that I just referenced. Calhoun's research goes everywhere, explains Dr. Ramsden. It picks up common themes in the U.S. and Britain in the 60s and 70s concerning the breakdown of urban environments and the collapse of civilization. For example, the 1964 brutal murder and sexual assault of Kitty Genovese in Queens, New York, shocked a generation. 38 people heard the drawn-out attack on the barmaid, and not a single person had contacted the police or intervened. Asterisk, not true. That is, uh, to some extent, urban myth. There there are parts of that story that are true, but parts that are not. And that, even the fact that that story has propagated uh, in the way that it has throughout the decades, speaks something about what they're talking about in this article. Back to the article... Dr. Adams says it's not so much that Calhoun provides a comprehensive explanation of what happened, but people were very happy to make those connections. They turned to his research to help explain this otherwise inexplicable and terrible event. And it goes on to... Give some examples of how this seeded, this idea of overpopulation and the disintegration of society was seeded in the popular, popular consciousness and, and spread through popular works of fiction and literature. Uh, the period following the publication of the rat research also saw a rush of popular books and films with the, an apop, apocalyptic view of a future crippled by overpopulation. In Anthony Burgess's The Wanting Seed, for example, massive overpopulation results in ultraviolence, compulsory homosexuality, and isolation. The writers of Judge Dredd, the flagship character of the British comic book 2000 AD, recall being aware of Calhoun's work. Dredd brutally polices massively overcrowded megacities, urban environments which had exceeded what Calhoun called the mega crisis the point at which the problems of overcrowding become irres- irresolvable. And you can extend this uh, all throughout the late 60s, early 70s, and that, that the population bomb that exploded because of the works of people like Calhoun and his experiments. Paul Ehrlich, clearly a popularizer of these ideas that seeded their way into the public consciousness through things like Make Room, Make Room, aka Soylent Green, which I talked about with James Evan Pilato in film literature in the New World Order, highly relevant to all of this. This work was definitely being pushed culturally at that time to make the public fear overcrowding and overpopulation But why? Why was this idea being pushed so hard from so many different sources, and for what purpose? Well, first of all, it should be underlined, triply underlined, that the Ehrlich population bomb hype was 100% charlatanry. Everything that Paul Ehrlich ever predicted came startlingly untrue, and yet Ehrlich continues to be held up as some sort of paragon of scientific reasoning and research. He is a debunked charlatan, more information on which, in CorbettReport.com Ehrlich, my podcast speaking about this overpopulation hype and myth and the complete lack of of scientific integrity behind the hype and hysteria. And in fact, the reality of the demographic winter, which is facing humanity as population starts to level off and eventually to plummet. Um, The the very, very, very leading edge of which you can see right here in places like Japan, where now deaths are exceeding births and uh, the population is shrinking. That's just the start. And it's a tiny little tiny little grain of snow, a little snowflake rolling down the hill that will become the snowball and plummeting population will be the result of that in the long term. Um, but uh, regardless of the complete lack of scientific rigor behind any of this, the idea of has been seeded into the public consciousness in such a way that people have so completely internalized, so completely taken on board, this hype and fear of overpopulation that they actively desire their own death. Or if not their own death, your death. You, you nameless, faceless stranger I've never met, I don't really care if you die. I hope you do so that you leave more room for the rest of us. That is what it has always been about founded on the false charlatanry of Thomas Malthus and the population crisis that has failed to come true for 200 plus years straight. It is charlatanry. Once again, I'll direct you back to my episode on Ehrlich for that. But if you think I'm joking about this desire for death that has been seeded in the public consciousness through this research, I will direct you to, for example, that opening clip that we watched uh, about John B. Calhoun from the National Library of Medicine from those early uh, 70s film reels, uh, where if you go down to the comment section on GooTube, where this video is unfortunately hosted, you will find a user named Hanford start a comment chain by saying, a huge incurable disease will always wipe out the overpopulation in a way. The more medicine human takes human takes, the more mutated the disease will be until it will knock out humanity back to almost dark age. Now, that kind of comment you would almost expect in our current COVID hysteria world, right? But that comment was left over a year ago. As the next commenter in the chain points out, from eight months ago, funny how this comment was written three months before coronavirus mutated to infect humans. I feel like a traveler from the future, a survivor from COVID-19 from Italy. And then Hanford replies by saying, oh yeah, I totally forgot about this comment six months ago. Yeah, kind of weird reading this again, as I totally forgot I wrote about this. But reading history books, there will always be some kind of worldwide catastrophe beside war that will kill off a lot of humans and groups. To which commenter John B. responds, nice call. This pandemic is only killing on the order of 0.5% of the people who get it, but it's a start. It's a start. Yeah, well, oh it's not killing off enough people, but hopefully something bigger will come along. And again, if you think I'm joking, the very next comment, Vortigon Silverwood, we're applying to John B. It's a promising start. Yes, I've seen this all over the internet, and someday I'm going to compile a list of just this type of rhetoric coming from Commenters, who knows, algorithmically generated AI bots or real human beings, I tend to believe that a lot of this is the latter because this idea has been so thoroughly seeded into the public consciousness uh, via the charlatans of the world, the Ehrlichs and others, and by recourse to Calhoun's research. Maybe not Calhoun himself, I don't know to what extent he had any say over any of the way that his research was propagated through the population, but it was used as one of those bases for the freakout about the population bomb that still continues to explode in the minds of people today who actively wish the death of large swaths of the human population because there's just, I need a little bit more stretching room out here. And we know what's going to happen when we crowd us into those cities like those rats. Who's crowding us into the city? Why do we have to be crowded? Do you understand how unimaginably vast this world is, and how much uh, resources remain untapped to this day? Do you? Uh, you've just swallowed all of the hype and propaganda and the fear mongering over this one hundred percent, and never questioned it. And now you actively desire the deaths of millions, maybe billions, so that you can feel a little bit more comfortable. Well, isn't that convenient? For the would-be rulers of society, the technocrats who literally want to engineer us into a mouse dystopia in order to cull the human population, what better way to do that than to get the human population to desire its own death? This is the underlying ideology of the great resetters. This is highly relevant to the situation we find ourselves in today facing the very people who are now coming out parading themselves on the stage to be the saviors of humanity who are going to see this through the crisis by pressing the great reset button entering the fourth industrial revolution and combining our physical biological and digital identities direct quote from klaus schwab at the world economic forum again if you think i am joking about this See what unfolded later on in that same episode of the Grand Theft World podcast, where I was talking to Richard Grove about books, and he brought out an interesting quotation from an interesting book that ties all of this together.
3: I got one more gem to share with you that I I found this week because I'm reading up on Klaus Schwab. Have you heard of this guy? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Klaus speaking like klaus now okay so uh he creates the world economic forum 1971 at davos uh it becomes a thing a couple years later where they start calling it davos but i just want to show you this 1973 manifesto that these folks got together the davos manifesto now before i show you that here's uh Otto von van Hopsburg. i don't know who he was in history and he's with klaus schwab so this is a guy Uh, who's related, I guess, uh, to the ruling family of of Europe back in the day. He's nothing to see here. Anyway, we're talking about this. Don't get distracted with that. Uh, At the third European Management Symposium, the Forum, the World Economic Forum, broadened its European focus under the theme, Shaping Your Future in Europe. This Davos meeting was held under the honorary sponsorship of His Royal Highness Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. The Commission of the European Communities renewed its patronage. Two developments dis- uh, distinguished this Davos meeting. First, Aurelio Perche the Italian industrialist delivered a speech summarizing the limits to growth, a book that had been commissioned by the Club of, the Club of Rome, a global think tank that he founded and served as its first president. The study caused a sensation over after its publication in 1972 for calling into question the sustainability of global economic growth. Reiterating some of the same concerns about demographics that the 18th century scholar Thomas Malthus had expressed, the authors examined several scenarios for the global economy and outlined the choices that society had to make to reconcile the economic development and environmental constraints sold over 12 million copies uh then they had a code of ethics and this was called the davos manifesto so this is what they're getting together to do and the people that bring you the great reset today it's not the first time they all got together and uh did anything i just wanted to to share because james you among few people on this planet you might know who uh, Prince Bernard was and what he had to do, or, or even Aurelio Puche, who sounds like a very nice guy. What, what is the what are people missing in that? What aren't they? And it,
0: uh, well, what sticks out to me is, of course, it always goes back to Malthus with these people. Always, always, always goes back to Malthus, who, um, of course, for people who don't know, uh, has ties to the British East India Company that I'm not going to be able to rattle off off the top of my head. He taught sure at the
3: British East India Company know. College. Right,
0: it. right. And uh, I, exactly. People know him as a like a, a pastor or a father or whatever. No, he was a British East India agent, essentially. And they sold an opium payroll.
3: there, by the way, that addicted people on purpose. Exactly. Yes. It's all
0: part of the illustrious history of that organization. Um, but yeah, he was, of course, the one who came in and out and said, oh, you know, population is increasing exponentially. Food is re- increasing arithmetically. If you do the math, basically, we're all going to be dead in 30 years unless we take drastic measures. And that has been clung on to now for well over 200 years and drudged up over and over and over and over. And every generation, lo and behold, they find we're all going to run out. We're going to run out of resources in 20 years unless we do these dramatic, drastic things. And of course, the limits to growth, which it mentions there, the Club of Rome document, was just the late, well, at that time, the latest iteration. We've had other iterations since then, obviously. But in the 1970s, part of the um, Ehrlich-led um revival of malthusianism and the overpopulation scam uh which relates back to stories about uh um uh soylent green but i forget the name of the book that soylent green was based on but um what do you remember the name of that book
3: no i just remember the punchline that soylent green is people
0: Yes, exactly. And of course, uh, I think Art Ehrlich wrote the forward to that book or was in one of the editions as a preface or something. Um, because of course, it's all going back to that because that is their fundamental justification time and time again. Essentially, we are a herd of cattle or of mice Whatever you know, take your pick and the overpopulation problem, as you we started off today's uh episode with uh, the overpopulation of the herd of mice or whatever it is, is going to create all these problems. So we have to find responsible ways for keeping that in line, and that's why over and over and over, this is what it goes back to. No surprise, I didn't know that about the Davos Manifesto. Zero surprise that that's in there because it's always at the heart of what they do, and it's all it, it was at the heart of Gates, of course. What is his overriding concern? What is the thing that he s- keeps him up at night? The human population, and he shows in his little videos. He shows the curve. Look, look at the way human population is going. We need to do something to flatten the curve, and uh, that's what these people obsess about. And you are the target of it. Whoever is listening to my voice right now, you are the target of these people. They hate your existence on this planet. You are cluttering up the planet that they want to live on. And that is every single time. That's what it goes back to with these people.
3: It's not like there's not solutions or countering information on that either because Buckminster Fuller wrote several times on this in Grunch of Giants and there's a couple other and he shows Malthus is wrong. Here's why. And as human population grows, inevitably, we are getting more and more efficient with our use of resources and all these things and there's no problem and the earth can sustain. I think he said 20 or 30 billion people without problem, but they choose to ignore that information. They choose to the hide it away, which is why you got to read the books, you know? And I could lay my hands on that Bucky book, but, you know, you get the point. There's stuff we got to read that wasn't pointed out and it wasn't assigned as homework. So we have to kind of discover it and assign it to ourselves.
0: Yes. And uh, I will always throw in the reference to Julian Simon, who was, I think, the best critic of this uh, mentality and uh, fought against the Ehrlichs of the world. And has pointed out that the greatest human resource is our brains and our ingenuity the next genius that comes along that invents something that will increase the food supply a million times or will do some other incredible thing that will, once again, expand the pie. It's With these Malthusian eugenicists, it's always, it's here's the pie and this is all we have and every single person is trying to eat from this pie. So you're just a useless eater. We have to get rid of the useless eaters. And people start to internalize that and believe it. And uh, of all the things that I cover, one of the ones that I get the most pushback from is about overpopulation. Well, the world is overcrowded, James. There are too many people. And people are thinking about it in completely the wrong way. We do not have a fixed pie. We have an expanding pie created by the ingenuity of new people coming into the uh, the human population. And the next, whatever, the next genius who's going to revolutionize everything May be born tomorrow, or maybe aborted tomorrow because of concerns about the overpopulation, or maybe just get a vaccine that uh, ends up lowering their IQ to the point where they're not the next genius. And that's to me is I cannot express how much. I detest that attitude that we have to uh, we have to attack the humans and keep them in line and kill the population, as opposed to letting them flourish, which is the uh, the other side of this. It's about flourishing rather than oh no, we're going to overpopulate. No, we can expand the pie. It is not a fixed pie.
3: I think that's a great point, and I think that leaves it open for optimism uh, and development and creativity and ingenuity and inventiveness. And all the things that come from learning, and once you stop assuming that you know everything because you went to school or watched the TV, I think that's the spark of 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 uh, of nature that needs to be reignited, that learning process.
0: Awesome. Happy note to uh, end our conversation on question mark. For sure. All right.
3: Thanks for stopping by. You're welcome to hang out for the rest of the show. I know you awesome. got a busy day ahead of you, so we won't look when you leave.
0: All right, thank you. <laughs> Oh, yes, look at that. They're at the very roots of the Davos Manifesto guiding the World Economic Forum, which is seeking to put us through the Great Reset to towards the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the end of humanity, as pronounced by our new unelected dictator, Klaus Schwab, is the limits to growth, the Club of Rome, and Thomas Malthus, Malthusian overpopulation propaganda. Do not swallow that poisoned pill, the poisoned pill of the propagandists that want you to believe that we are a cancer upon this planet and we must get rid of you in order to make the world better for us, your ruling technocrats. Don't believe it. If there is any message that the entirety of my life's work And the work that I've been doing at the Corbett Report since 2007 boils down to, it is this. You are not a cancer on this planet. You are not a useless eater. We do not need drastic strictures of control over the human population, both literal and metaphorical, in order to make the Earth better for the technocratic elite that wish to rule over us. Please do not swallow that poisoned pill. Look into the sources that I am going to link up, as I always do, in the show notes where you can peruse at your leisure more on this subject and the very real information debunking this old Malthusian propagandistic nonsense that unfortunately so much of the population has bought into, willingly accepted, to the point where they now seek their own death. It is a death cult that is in trying to institute this great reset in order to reset humanity and b- cull the population. This is, not, this is not out there stuff. This is documentable in their own words. And it always, always comes back to this. It always comes back to Malthus and the limits to growth and overpopulation and ultimately eugenics. It keeps coming back to these issues for a very specific reason because they want you out of the picture and the easiest way to facilitate that is to make you want you out of the picture don't buy it do not swallow that propaganda pill that's going to do it for this extremely important edition of propaganda watch i hope you will share this information with people in your life who may have been who may have succumbed to that propaganda programming and hopefully deprogram them from their state of subjection to their technocratic overlords But on that note, that's going to do it for today. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future.